You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1500 in Singapore, 9am in Helsinki, 7am here in London and 4am in Sao Paulo. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... It is unacceptable to prevent food, water, medicine and electricity from reaching the people in Gaza. This behaviour is a war crime that should be condemned by the world. King Abdullah of Jordan speaking after a summit of Arab and Muslim leaders in Riyadh will be in Tel Aviv with an update on the situation in the Middle East. We'll hear how the shift to urban warfare might change the situation and we'll check in with the 2 plus 2 dialogue which took place in New Delhi between the US and India on Friday. And Argentinian presidential candidates went head to head before next weekend's election. We'll hear who came out on top. With a roundup of news from Asia and a rustle through the day's papers, we'll end the show looking at the Celt of Beauty, the subject of a new exhibition in London. I think through these three very different ways in, into discussing beauty, hopefully we'll open up that conversation. That's all coming up here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. President Vladimir Zelensky warned Ukrainians on Sunday to prepare for new waves of Russian attacks on infrastructure as winter approaches and says troops are anticipating an onslaught in the eastern theatre of the war. Tens of thousands of people protested across Spain yesterday against acting Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez's plans to grant amnesty to Catalan separatists in exchange for support for another term in office. And DP World Australia, a major ports operator, is back online after a cyber attack crippled its facilities over the weekend. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, 57 Arab and Muslim leaders met at a summit in Riyadh this weekend. They condemned Israeli aggression against the Gaza Strip and demanded that the UN Security Council take a decisive and binding decision to impose a ceasefire. Israel is facing mounting international pressure, including from its main ally, the United States, to do more to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza as the death toll rises and fighting intensifies near and around hospitals. Well, I'm joined now from Tel Aviv by Alison Kaplan-Sommer, who's a journalist for Haaretz. Alison, good to have you back on the show. What is the latest on the ground there? Um, the latest reports from the IDF is that it is uh, clashing with uh, Hamas in the Al-Shati refugee camp in uh, Gaza City. And um, two Gaza hospitals, um, uh, Al-Shifa and Al-Quds, um, have announced that they can no longer treat patients and uh, shut down. There are Israeli forces r- ringed around those uh, those two hospitals. Um, they are faced with the um, the dilemma. They believe that Haman Kama- Hamas command centers are located under those hospitals, and yet they have to listen to the warnings coming explicitly from the United States to try to avoid uh, civilian casualties. There are reports coming from the IDF that they attempted to 
to transfer fuel to the hospitals um, for the purpose of running the hospitals and the uh, and the patients, um, but that Hamas uh, refused to allow them to transfer uh, that fuel in. Now, at the summit in, in Riyadh, Arab and Muslim leaders rejected Israel's self-defence claims in Gaza. They called for an immediate ceasefire, but they did decline to approve any punitive economic or political steps against the country. What more do we know about the outcome of this meeting? I mean, that is a victory for Israel and the fact that the punitive steps were avoided. I believe that that is, you know, due to the warming ties between uh, many of the powerful Gulf Gulf states and Israel. And probably if the most punitive and the most uh, harsh measures against Israel were prevented, it comes probably from the Saudis and from the UAE not allowing um, that to be um, uh, to happen. You know, in addition to the fact that there's officially peace between Israel and, uh, and countries like Egypt and Jordan. What is unsaid there is the fact that Hamas, which is a, obviously a huge threat to Israel, is also a threat. Um, Hamas and its supporters and its, you know, act what they call the axis of resistance in Tehran, Iran's um, uh, alliance between Hezbollah and uh, and Hamas, uh, threatens these Arab regimes um, uh, to a lesser extent, but uh, but very clearly as they do to Israel. So there's a um, there's a, a back and forth. There's a, there's a tightrope there between obviously the concern about the situation in Gaza and the civilians and the interests of some of these Arab countries. Mm, because it was the first time. I think in 11 years that that an Iranian leader uh, has been to Saudi Arabia. The president, Ibrahim Raisi, was there. As you say, we know that Iran backs Hamas as well as Hezbollah and uh, the Houthi rebels in in Yemen. And there's also intense Saudi and Iran rivalry. Uh, How might Iran's inclusion change the Arab state's narrative on the war? Um, I don't think that they, you know, necessarily trust the Iranians. I think that it's, you know, an attempt to engage. I think what's trying to be prevented here is a wider Middle East war, which uh, looks like it may be really um, on the brink, um, considering the aggressive behavior of Hezbollah on uh, on Israel's northern border, um, that we may be looking at, you know, an all-out war between Israel and Lebanon. And I think that that's something that, uh, that they're trying to prevent. And so it's a strategy, I guess, of engaging the... Uh, the Iranians diplomatically at the same time as their proxies are being confronted on the ground. Mm. What was the Israeli government's response to the Riyadh summit? Um, honestly, you know, Israelis are so focused on what's happening in their own countries. I mean, it's not making the international headlines, but we're still getting rocket alerts, missiles every day. There's been missiles from the north on on Haifa. Um, we're at, we have dead soldiers being, in, you know, um, uh, announced every day in, in a trickle, you know, two, three, five. Um, each day, you know, people's families are, are are engaged in this. We have um, tons of displaced um, evacuees all over the country. So I'm not, uh, uh, and a war is being waged on the ground. So I think, you know, all eyes in Israel, honestly, are on um, its northern border and on the Gaza border. And there's not much bandwidth left for uh, for reacting to Riyadh. Honestly, in the Israeli headlines, I haven't seen uh, any official reaction to what's been going on um, in, in that summit. Mm. And I wonder if there's been any reaction to um, the marches that have been taking place in cities all over the world demanding an immediate ceasefire. There's definitely been reactions in Israel to that. There's um, a great frustration with um, with feeling as if the, the world does not understand why this 
war is being waged, as if Israel has some sort of um, revenge wish or, you know, wants to lash out and punish um, the Gazans um, and, uh, and Hamas. And there's just not an understanding. There's a feeling that there's not enough of an understanding of the horror of the atrocities that occurred on October 7th, of the impossibility um, of Israel to live next door to such a deadly uh, force that uh, wants its destruction and now has actually come in and committed horrible um, massacres and, and, and rapes and, uh, and terrible atrocities and an understanding that, uh, that Israel's um, mission in Gaza, again, is not to seek any kind of revenge or collective punishment, but is to try to keep itself safe. And Israel sees this 100 percent as a defensive war and is very frustrated and upset by portrayals um, around the world that it's some sort of um, aggression and, uh, you know, using words like uh, like genocide um, uh, to uh, to describe what Israel's intent is in this uh, in this in this operation. We do know, however, that over 10,000 uh, Palestinians have been killed in this conflict so far. Uh, and if Israel won't grant a ceasefire, do we know that at least humanitarian pauses are now in place? Yeah, humanitarian pauses have been in place, but you have to understand the other point on the scale when it comes to humanitarian efforts is that 239 Israelis are being held hostage inside Gaza. The Red Cross is not being allowed to visit them. Um, they're not, not even a list of who they are or reports, nothing, no word on them. And Israelis are desperate. They're sick about this hostage situation. And uh, Hamas has shown no humanitarian um, uh, gestures or attitude towards the, the these hostages or the treatment of these hostages. So when it comes to humanitarian aid, Israel is trying to hold a position of, you know, tit for tat. Um, yeah, we want to uh, show humanitarian um, uh, uh, gestures and, and show humanitarian um, uh, attitude towards Gazan civilians, but shouldn't it go the other way too? And therefore, that is why that uh, that card is being uh, held close to the chest. But as you said, there's plenty of international pressure on the humanitarian side, and Israel is much more likely to give on humanitarian gestures than it is, uh, for example, um, to calls for some sort of real ceasefire. Mm. Um, humanitarian pauses, yes, but any form of ceasefire, no. Uh, you were talking earlier about the fighting actually on the streets of Gaza now, particularly around those hospitals. Do you think that that switch to urban warfare will change the temperature in this war? Um, it might. But Israel is, has all eyes right now on its northern border. The more pressure there is on Hamas, the more that it looks like it's getting close to a Hamas collapse of, you know, Israel is really, you know, getting to the nerve centers of these uh, Hamas control centers, the more pressure there's going to be on uh, Hezbollah in the north to participate. And yesterday saw a massive uh, es escalation of involvement by uh, by Hezbollah in terms of uh, what they call, um, you know, uh, in response to um, uh, uh, what's going on in Israel. Again, it's a, it's a cycle fearing increased attacks from the northern border is attacking many Hezbollah tar targets and did yesterday, including military facilities, housing, weapons, uh, a warehouse and, uh, and infrastructure. Um, yesterday, more than 20 Hamas uh, militants were, were captured in a, in a, in a joint uh, in a joint operation. Um, so Israel's operating now on uh, many, many fronts and, um, you know, it's getting it's getting uh, spread thin now. Alison, thank you very much indeed. That's Alison Kaplan-Sommer 
Lozano there speaking to us from Tel Aviv. Well, as we've been hearing, the Israeli Defence Force is now conducting urban warfare in the streets of Gaza. Israel's army, the most powerful in the Middle East, is fighting an enemy that has the advantage of knowing the territory and has many low-tech tactics that might, in these circumstances, be able to blunt Israel's technological superiority. Well, I'm joined now by Antonio Sampao, who's a PhD student at King's College London, focused on armed conflict in cities. Antonio, welcome to to the programme. What does this urban warfare in Gaza look like at present? So the urban warfare in Gaza is um, like many recent, unfortunately, the many recent um, uh, instances of urban warfare are extremely destructive. But there are some elements in this context of Gaza that make it, um, that aggravate the situation. So for instance, the fact that people in Gaza have nowhere to flee. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an area that has been called uh, an open air um, sort of prison. And um, it's almost the entire uh, extent of the of the of the of the Gaza Strip has been uh, affected by urban warfare, by ground incursions, uh, but most importantly by um, or, or more commonly by um, uh, airstrikes. So the people have nowhere to flee. A lot of the Gaza Strip is already an urban area, so the areas where um, people can go to tents and 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 concentrate, uh, sorry, um, uh, humanitarian camps has been um, is is greatly reduced. So people in Gaza don't have many choices that that other people in other situations of equally destructive urban warfare, such as the battle in Mosul to uh, expel the Islamic State, um, they could go to other Iraqi cities um, or even to Syria, uh, to cities to stay with, with their relatives as well as to camp cities. So that's that's an aggravant. And the other situation is that, uh, as, as we've seen today and, and this weekend, the, um, the prolongation of this conflict and the intensity of the airstrikes, uh, Already um, in 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 the sort of month of this um, operation, the the number of airstrikes um, is much greater than the comparative period in other battles, including the one in Mosul in Iraq against the, the Islamic State. So the Israeli um, military doctrine and military practices tend to be quite aggressive in that regard. We've seen that um, in 2006 in Lebanon. And this time in Gaza, it seems that they are again opting for a um, quite aggressive stance against Hamas, which, of course, is a part of the conflict that has also um, undermined the security of civilians by uh, operating in densely populated areas, regardless of whether you believe the, the which side you believe in this um, in this battle of narratives. The fact is that Hamas uh, has been operating um, in heavily populated areas, and that is another um, situation that makes the civilian impact and the humanitarian impact of this conflict so destructive. Mm. I mean, armies are meant to protect civilians, but this becomes less clear in the case of urban warfare. Why, why is that? So the, in urban warfare, the, just the number of ethical and moral decisions that confront soldiers at, at every corner at every street is is just um, incomprehensible for I think for for any of us who are you know civilians. Uh, it, it is it is uh, especially in the situation of Gaza where the um, 
the, the inhabitation, the, the demographics of the city are so dense. It's such a densely packed city. Um, the, the fact that Gaza, in many ways, is the nightmare scenario for any military um, and any humanitarian organization in terms of urban warfare because of this density and also because of the tunnels that Hamas has um, has constructed under the inevitably under the civilian um, um, sort of uh, construct of the city. And um, and this is this is something that has been also aggravating the situation. And in Gaza, it is um, the, the the political situation, I think, of the of the conflict in which, you know, such atrocities committed by Hamas inside Israel have made the uh, the choice of tactics have also affected the choice of tactics. It's not that the tactics adopted by a military are not uh, purely a technical or technocratic uh, decision. It is also affected by the politics of the conflict, and um, and Israel perceives it as um, as 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 uh, truly an existential threat, um, and and that has has made it uh, the protection of civilians uh, much more difficult. Also, not only because of the tactical decisions on a day-to-day -day basis by the common soldier, but also by the strategic decision of just the number of um, of, of airstrikes to conduct, the fact that airstrikes have been quite, um, the payload of, of, of bombs have been quite heavy, and Israel itself, it itself acknowledged that, for instance, when there was that question of whether, who had conducted the, the, the attack that unfortunately hit one of the hospitals in Gaza, Israel said, look, um, our bombs are much heavier and bigger than the one that hit the hospital. Therefore, it was probably Hamas. Um, so, so Israel admits that it, it is using quite destructive uh, bomb material. Um, so, so, so that in, in Gaza is um, overwhelming the the um, the constraints, the, the 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 sort of ethical and moral dilemmas confronting both soldiers and and generals. Mm. Does Hamas have the advantage here, knowing the territory? It, it has a advantage um, in being the defensive side in having been able to obviously prepare and plan this. Uh, uh, it was clear that the attacks inside Israel by Hamas um, have been carefully planned um, and, um, and and used considerable, you know, uh, tactics and technologies that um, took Israelis by, by surprise. And... It has the disadvantage as the defensive force and um, also um, the fact that Israel, despite the criticism, the, the understandable criticism that Israel has um, uh, has has been has faced uh, with the conduct of this of this conflict, it is still um, operating under an international system of nation states in which you know there is considerable pressure especially by the united nations which has used very uh, powerful language in describing the uh, the aggressive tactics of the israeli military um, to minimize civilian casualties so those are considerable constraints and urban warfare is um for for many many decades um, um the discussion around the implications of um, warfare in an increasingly urban world, an urbanizing world, um, have you know keep have have kept many experts and 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 um, uh, uh, 
uh, ethical uh, military analysts in in uh, awake at night because it is um, it is it is a type of conflict that uh, places the civilians in um, at, at the center of the of the equation of the military equation. So um, it is it is a very destructive form of conflict. And uh, Hamas, knowing that you know it, it draws the military, I think everything was planned to draw the military to um, to to the the, the urban areas um, for them to to operate with considerable constraints. Are there any internationally accepted standards when it comes to urban warfare as there are on the use of nuclear or chemical weapons? So that is a very good question. Uh, it, it is something that has fortunately been um, increasingly debated recently. Um, a few years ago, the international starting around 2016, um, I think someone who has been at the, the forefront of these discussions has been the uh, International Committee uh, of the Red Cross. And um, and they they have encouraged that discussion on the um, legality and international humanitarian implications of um, different types of armament. And um, last year, um, the a number of countries, um, not all the UN member countries, but dozens of countries have signed uh, an agreement um, sponsored or, or, or um, supported by many uh, humanitarian organizations regarding the use of explosive devices in populated areas. Uh, that treaty, as I understand, is not binding. So it's just a, um, let's say, um, a, a, um, an understanding, a, a, a declaration of understanding that um, using explosive weapons in populated areas is extremely destructive. And that has to be minimized and um, alternatives have to be found. I believe, and I'm working on a paper right now on this, that um, di international diplomacy, especially at the United Nations level, need to include urban warfare as um, as a category, as a special area of attention, just like we have with nuclear, chemical, biological weapons in terms of prevention of um, um, prevention of the of the conflict, of course, using those methods, but also the um, non-proliferation, the necessity to non-proliferate uh, the materials for that type of conflict. And I think similar, it's it's a different situation, of course, but similar principles could be applied to urban warfare in terms of early warning systems and a discussion on the proliferation of methods and uh, some types of armaments such as uh, um, um, missiles that um, um, inevitably uh, affect uh, a wide area um, um, in terms of in, in areas that are heavily urbanized. And I think when when there is an early warning that there is a conflict going to affect uh, uh, an area that, you know, is, is heavily populated and, and is going to spill over into cities, uh, international diplomacy has to act more, more, uh, more quickly and with better tools, more uh, specific tools to prevent such conflicts. Antonio, thank you very much indeed. That's Antonio Sampao. Now, still to come on the programme, we explore the history and science of beauty. I think through these three very different ways in, into discussing beauty, hopefully we'll open up that conversation. This is The Globalist. We know that more than 190 healthcare workers in Gaza have been killed since the beginning of the war between Israel and Hamas on October the 7th. Thousands of miles away in London, scores of doctors and nurses gathered in scrubs on Friday to call for a ceasefire. Each of them held a placard with the name of a dead medical worker to highlight the realities faced by their colleagues in Palestine. Monocle's Isabella Jules spoke to some of the medical staff in the crowd. 
So you can see Moman Mansur, Yasin Al Akras, Nahid Abdullah Tef, Shaima Saidam, Ibrahim Matar, Bissan Halassa, Yasser Al Nasari, Isra Alashkar, Ramadan Dogmush. A list of names, all healthcare workers who have been killed in Gaza since the start of this war just over a month ago. Every single plaque is a person, a human being, a doctor. Some of them are seniors, some of them are junior, some of them are medical students. One of them used to be the dean of the university, Dr Omar Farwana, that I teach at. These are beautiful, beautiful people who have been killed because of the violence and we don't want anyone else to die. The violence must stop. Outside Downing Street, the UK Prime Minister's residence were UK doctors in scrubs, some who know Gazan medics personally, others who are just horrified at what they're seeing. I'm here today to stand with the doctors in Gaza who are working in absolutely disastrous and horrid conditions. Sorry, do you think I get pushed off? I've seen things I don't think imagine they thought they'd ever have to see. And I've seen on the news that the largest hospital in Gaza where up to 50,000 people are sheltering is facing bombardment. And I just feel so powerless and so heartbroken by everything I'm seeing and hearing. You know, it needs to be an immediate ceasefire and lives are being lost every minute, every hour, every day. And it's, it's just too much and something needs to stop. Over the weekend, there were reports of power cuts in Gazan hospitals and of Israeli strikes falling close by. I think hospitals should be sacrosanct. One of my colleagues said that, you know, hospitals are temples of safety, they're temples of humanity and protection, and they should never be targeted. As a medic, that goes against our very ethos, where the main aim of any hospital is to provide for those who are sick and vulnerable and therefore for such a site to be targeted is antithetical to its very nature. These doctors in London can't imagine how their counterparts in Gaza can work in increasingly difficult conditions. This is simple things, antiseptic, painkillers, electricity, clean water, to even clean the wounds. They don't even have that, they don't, they don't have clean water. Enough nutrition to give those injured and one doctor said they were taking women's uteruses out because they had bleeding after giving childbirth. And normally you do have medications and you do have things you can give and taking the uterus out, the womb out, would be the last thing you do. Monocle's Isabella Jewell there. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, let's 
continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Vincent McAvinney, a political journalist and a regular Monocle Radio contributor. Good morning to you, Vincent. Good morning. Now, were you out marching this weekend? Because it seems like most of the world was. I wasn't out marching, but I was in central London. And I've got to say, it was a pretty toxic atmosphere. And I think uh, as you look at the British papers today, the blame is being pointed squarely by opposition parties, but also the police themselves at their own boss, Suella Braverman. The rhetoric that she used, they say, alleged last week, uh, when it comes to these protests, calling them hate marches, uh, and uh, talking uh, in a piece in The Times on Thursday about the discrepancy in, in how the police treat different marches, led effectively to a, a right, hard right wing mob that marched on the Cenotaph, uh, one of our most sort of sacred uh, sites uh, in the capital on Saturday. They disturbed a moment of, uh, of silence that was being held by actual forces personnel. Uh, and it was clear by the arrests that had been made that many of them were drunk, coked up, had weapons on them and engaged in running battles with the police. Uh, and instead of really coming out strongly and condemning those people this morning, again, Suella Bravman, the Home Secretary, has gone after the... Uh, roughly sort of 700,000, it's thought, marchers who were pro-Palestinian, who, whilst there were incidents in that crowd of uh, symbols and speech that was anti-Semitic, the vast, vast majority were peaceful in the way that they marched over the weekend. Absolutely. What does this mean for the Home Secretary's future? I think it's really in the balance now because I think the actual the Met Police, a lot of people have said, have stepped up this weekend and and if you were down there, you saw and in the videos you can see they handled themselves very well. They kept the two sides apart. They kettled the far-right protesters. They pushed them away. They ended up in Chinatown. Many of them have been arrested. They've been very active on social media in going after and posting pictures of the people that they want to find from that side, but also some of those who were really espousing strong anti-Semitism in the pro-Palestinian march. So what we're going to see this week is going to be fascinating British politics. The reason I wanted to talk about Suella Braverman, even though she is just the Home Secretary now in the UK, who's the Interior Ministry, she is in my mind next in line to be the leader of the Conservative Party once Rishi Sunak goes. There is an argument that's being had that she's been trying to get herself fired to create more buzz around herself and to start running as a shadow candidate. Uh, And we are expecting a reshuffle this week of the top team whether or not Rishi Sunak decides enough is enough we're getting rid of you you've been inflammatory for too long there was a policy uh, that I covered last week uh, which she tried to get into the King's speech which was to take away homeless people's tents uh, and to find charities that gave them some now that report I was just uh, speaking to the gang here in, in the gallery that ended up being on Gogglebox on the on Friday night and the reaction uh, which is a show where you watch people watching the news and other programmes, the reaction of that was utterly condemning. Uh, And I think many people unhappy at the tone that she is setting in this country right now. And we've also got a big event on Wednesday here, the Rwanda policy, her flagship policy, where she thinks uh, people coming across in small boats should be sent for processing and then given if they need asylum, that asylum in Rwanda or our highest court, the Supreme Court, will be reviewing that policy. There are arguments that win or lose, the government can spin it whichever way it needs to help. But that policy is ultimately her brainchild uh, and that uh, rests with her. Now, if, if they lose at the Supreme Court, we could see them attacking the Supreme Court, saying this is why we need, you know, we're going to put it to people in a general election. Uh, but if they, you know, win, which is also a possibility as well, we'll see just how many people they start getting on those flights. But there is a risk in that because we have seen in Rwanda 
a country which sadly has not always been peaceful in recent history, uh, that the people that would be going would be a vast majority of them who are coming across are Muslim. Uh, and then you would create a, a Muslim population in Rwanda, uh, which the local people might not be too happy, you know, that, that are coming. All these people that are being shipped, thousands of them would need to be shipped from the UK. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the policy here, you would then end up with waves and waves of story of how those people are then faring in Rwanda. And if things went very wrong, that could be coming back to haunt the British government. Mm. And the government seems to be losing support from all sides, including from the man who was behind uh, Margaret Thatcher's advertising campaign. Yeah, that's right. Saatchi and Saatchi, which is a very famous advertising agency here in the UK. Uh, it sort of did the Labour isn't working ads that uh, helped Margaret Thatcher in power uh, and the famous sort of demonise uh, Tony Blair ad in 1997. Uh, well, they have come out and said uh, Tories now would mean five more years of stagnation nation cruelty and despair uh, that is a pretty stinging endorsement but you can understand why business uh, is probably not feeling too warm against the party that traditionally they have been the strongest supporter of because we've had the likes of uh, many ministers including up to Prime Minister Boris Johnson who famously said F business when it came to Brexit in recent years showing a real disregard for supporting business helping them with the regulations needed and the opportunities that many of them tried to promise that Brexit would bring simply aren't coming to fruition. Yeah. Let's move over to Los Angeles now and uh, the end of the strike there uh, because it means that actually the whole industry seems to have been reinvigorated, lots of lots of cash rolling in. Yeah, that's right. So not only the actors are getting themselves more money and residuals from streaming, but it looks like the politicians too. There's been a sort of drying up of uh, funding for political candidates coming from Hollywood. And of course, that mostly goes to President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, herself a Californian with long-term relationships in the entertainment industry. They haven't been able to tap that resource. They haven't been able to do events in Hollywood to reach out. Uh, because when you are working in a political campaign, one of the things that they all do have have is a sort of VIPs team because you know if you're trying to reach people particularly young people particularly uh, people that don't normally engage with the political process the way that you see celebrities now is account above their head which is their Instagram followers their Twitter followers they might have direct mail newsletters they might have all these things and you're not only trying to get their cash but you're trying to use their networks to expand your reach now these Democrats have been unwilling to do events uh, in Hollywood because they don't want to cross the picket line uh, but that now looks like that will ramp up I mean it looks at the moment though like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris you know they've raised 70 million dollars each in the in each of the last uh, two fiscal quarters they are definitely hitting targets uh, when when it comes to reaching it but we know unless Donald Trump ends in prison it is going to be a rematch all the money they need is going to be important but with the polls showing increasingly that particularly younger voters and voters from uh, different minority ethnic backgrounds are less willing to sort of hold their nose and vote for Biden again they really need to use these celebrities to get that message across that as Joe Biden likes to say you know don't judge me against the almighty judge me against the alternative this is the choice you've got to make uh, and they'll want to reach through those people through the likes of you know a Kardashian Instagram account. Sure <laughs> uh, finally let's look at how you can make yourself lucky. 
Yeah, this is a piece I really love, uh, and uh, it's in the Wall Street Journal today. And it starts with a really interesting anecdote about uh, one of the a tech founder who sold his company to Spotify for millions, but he went for a job advert uh, at NASA. He'd been studying law and he wanted an internship, and he got into a lift and he saw a woman who had a big crate of coffee, and she just he just said to her, "Oh, you must really like coffee." And he says that moment changed his life. She laughed, remembered him at the interview she put him through, but he realised that NASA he wasn't interested in law. He actually wanted to code and he created this company. Uh, And this piece looks at uh, how people can change their luck. And it's not just about this sort of nebulous idea of manifesting, but it looks at little ways that you can do it. Because the research from uh, University of Hertfordshire here in England said that there are different traits that people who are lucky and people who consider themselves unlucky have. So the lucky tend to be cheery, optimistic, open and resilient. And the latter, uh, the unlucky, have their heads down and they're unable to spot and seize opportunities, particularly financial opportunities, because they get into tunnel vision. And they talk about an experiment they did where they told those participating to count the photographs in the newspaper. Now, the self-described unlucky swept past half-page ads that revealed the answer to the question that they had put in the newspaper. They just kept going through counting. But those who were lucky spotted it and collected their cash prize much quicker. And so it talks in this piece about a couple of things you can do. Creating a lucky diary uh, about changing your mindset. Record a good thing that happens every day or something bad that's not happening anymore. And since your emotions are contagious, your good mood and sense of positivity uh, and possibility, if you see yourself getting better and doing better can affect those around you and create more opportunities for you. And it also talks about things which we all know can bring more joy. You know, not just thinking, oh, I won't like that food. Actually trying it. Watching a movie you wouldn't normally watch that will spark new thoughts. Rearranging furniture. Showing yourself that there are new possibilities and that you're a flexible person. Uh, It's a really lovely little read and it's not just this idea of like, oh, just manifest it and it'll come alive. It's little steps and things that you can do to get there to make yourself a bit luckier. Absolutely. And as you say, many points in here connecting the dots about between yourself and other people and just really quite sensible advice. Sensible advice yeah yeah a lot of it does come back to you know improving your finances and and your career but there's a lot of other nice little things to do here on on what is a wet and grey November morning here in London. But a bit of a misleading headline it doesn't make you know how to win the lottery. (laughs) No sadly not. Vincent thank you very much indeed that's Vincent McAvinney there. Now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. President Vladimir Zelensky warned Ukrainians on Sunday to prepare for new waves of Russian attacks on infrastructure as winter approaches and said troops were anticipating an onslaught in the eastern theatre of the war. Zelensky issued his warning during his nightly video address, a day after Russian forces carried out their first missile attack on the capital, Kyiv, in some seven weeks. Tens of thousands of people protested across Spain yesterday against acting Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez's plans to grant amnesty to Catalan separatists in exchange for support for another term in office. The government secured a deal with the Catalan Separatist Party on Thursday, which includes passing a contentious law granting amnesty to those convicted over Catalonia's attempt to secede from Spain in 2017. And DP World Australia, a major ports operator, is back online after a cyber attack crippled its facilities over the weekend. The container terminals in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth were disrupted from Friday until this morning. The firm manages around 40% of goods entering and leaving the country. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The fifth 
2 plus 2 dialogue between India and the United States took place in New Delhi on Friday, attended by the defence and foreign ministers of both countries. These annual meetings were originally launched by India and the US to provide a positive, forward-looking vision for the India-US strategic partnership and to promote synergy in their diplomatic and security efforts. Well, I'm joined now down the line from Barcelona by Preeti Nalu, who is Global Director of Report for the World. Preeti, many thanks for coming on The Globalist. I wonder if you could start by telling us more about the 2 plus 2 and how it brings momentum to the dialogue uh, between the world's largest democracy, India, and the oldest modern democracy, the United States. Thank you, Georgina. Um, Indeed, this visit by US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin took place amid increased partnership between India and the US, especially in defense industrial cooperation and defense technology innovation. Now, it appears that further agreements between the two countries will deepen their cooperation on technology related to intelligence, surveillance, air combat, munition systems, and mobility. But this is also part of US efforts to counter China's own military expansion in the Indo-Pacific, where India, of course, would be an important ally. And given India's own historic geopolitical competition with China, they certainly have deep common interests in the region. Now, um, Austin is also attending the Association of Southeast Asian Nations um, in uh, Indonesia, which will include representation from China, Russia, India, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, and the 10 ASEAN uh, member states. And what the US is trying to do as part of this trip is to establish um, a sort of a hub and spoke model, if you will, in the Indo-Pacific region, where the US serves as the hub, while the Asian nations with military ties to it form the spokes. So it's a system where the US is trying to consolidate its policy influence over Asian allies, while also increasing their cooperation and thereby countering the expansion of Chinese influence. But the type of relationship that the US will continue to pursue with India and vice versa is a bit more complex, owing to India's own historic approach to foreign policy through multi-alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they talk at all about uh, the, the various conflicts going on, particularly, uh, obviously, Ukraine and Gaza? Absolutely. Um, It is important to know that India has always been had a principle of strategic economy, uh, autonomy, sorry, um, where it exercises a multilateral approach towards countries that are are traditionally hostile to each other, for example, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, between Israel and the Palestinian territories, and between the United States and Russia. And this um, approach looks like it is set to continue. So while India is um, seeking possible ties as far and as widely as possible without seeing any contradictions to this approach, as you mentioned with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, India continues to purchase um, cheap Russian oil while the US has wanted to isolate Russia in the global sphere due to its actions in Ukraine. So this is just one example. There are other parts of the world where the two countries do not necessarily see eye to eye, 
And so it is clear that while the US and India relations are closer than ever, Modi's visit to the US and the latest US visit to India do not imply some sort of a formal alliance or multi-defense um, treaty. And to continue along that those lines, the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict is directly challenging India's ambitious initiative to build a new trade route from India through the Middle East to Europe. Um, and this route was announced at the G20 summit held in India in September, and it is called the India Middle East Europe Economic Corridor. And it is backed by the United States, the European Union and Saudi Arabia, and aims to establish a rail and sh shipping network that links um, the Israeli port of Haifa on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, where the goods will be shipped to Europe. And of course, that's off the table now, is it? Well, it's, it's severely challenged uh, because of the current conflict. And so India has taken an interesting approach while uh, they've condemned the Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, they've balanced their position by calling for talks for a sovereign, independent, viable state of Palestine, which has always been the historic uh, position of India as far as um, Palestinian statehood is concerned. Um, and this position will not change, but it remains to be seen how India is going to approach uh, this uh, hugely ambitious initiative that they announced uh, that is being challenged. Pretty, thank you very much indeed. That's Pretty Nalu there. You're with Monocle Radio. It is 4.40 in Buenos Aires, at 8.40 in Zurich. Argentina will vote in a second round runoff on November the 19th. In advance of the poll, the two candidates, Economy Minister Sergio Massa of the ruling coalition and the libertarian lawmaker Javier Millet, went head-to-head -head in a debate last night. Well, I'm joined now by Andrew Thompson, who's a Latin American specialist and a regular contributor to Latin News. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. What was the format for this legally required debate and how has it changed from previous ones? Um, it was an interesting format, uh, basically a two-hour long debate divided into about six major themes. The two participants were not allowed to take any notes or make any um, PowerPoint projections or anything of the kind, so they were essentially kind of living on their nerves. Um, and that was an important change from previous debates where they've had a lot more kind of, um, you know, uh, audio-visual support at their hands. And what did each candidate have to say on the key topics? Well, I think perhaps the single most important topic in the Argentine elections is the state of the economy. Mm. Um, and what was surprising was that Sergio Massa, who in a sense has the weakest position, um, really uh, did very well on that subject. He has the weakest position um, because inflation is raging at 140%, about 40% of the population is living below the poverty line, and he can be seen as representing, if you like, the status quo of many previous governments and his own. He is actually serving as economy minister, and he can be seen as representing the decline of the Argentine economy. However, the surprising thing was that he was successfully able to shift the terms of the debate and place his opponent on the defensive. 
And he did this by using a, a very interesting rhetorical technique. <laughs> Basically, he fired a lot of short questions at Millet. Uh, for yes or for no, are you in favor of dollarization? For yes or for no, uh, do you want to shut down the central bank? For yes or for no, um, are you going to uh, eliminate subsidies and allow charging for private education? Um, so faced by this sort of avalanche of future-looking short questions, uh, Millet went on the defensive, um, and that really kind of uh, rattled him for the rest of the debate. There were no knockout punches. He, he did, you know, hold his own, um, but most analysts, it's only a few hours since the debate has ended, uh, most analysts seem to seem to be saying it was at least a, a, a technical victory for Massa. Mm. Each candidate was given a couple of minutes at the end of the debate to answer the question, why do you want to be president? Why do they want to be president? Uh, well, they both say what all politicians say to, to make for, you know, to improve the country um, and to work for the voters and, and the citizens. Um, and they're both sort of saying, I mean, for Millet is presenting himself as the um, anti-status quo candidate. Uh, and he's basi basically saying, you've been lied to, you've been robbed. There is a political class, a caste, he calls it, uh, which have been corrupt and have been stealing money for years. Uh, you must vote against that. Um, and on the other hand, Massa's, Massa's approach was to say, um, I've been involved in real politic and dealing with the real problems of the economy. And while the results um, may not be there, I'm offering a national unity government um, from to incorporate people from lots of different sectors to try and come up with a much more consensual solution to the problem. Mm. Uh, so the uh, election actually happens on the 19th. But what's your prediction? Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, essentially, the polls over the last three months have been all over the place and have got it wrong various times. So at the moment, the polls are saying that uh, Millet is ahead, maybe by four, five, six percentage points. Um, the presidential debate, uh, I think, will narrow that gap um, and make it, it is still an open race. Uh, but it increases uh, Massa's chances of winning. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That was Latin America specialist Andrew Thompson. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to get the latest news from Asia. And joining us from Singapore is Monocle's associate producer, Lillian Fawcett. Good morning to you, Lillian. Good afternoon to you. Good morning, good afternoon, Georgina. Good to be with you. Uh, let's start in Thailand. Uh, extraordinary story here about police working with their counterparts from China, essentially bringing in Chinese police force to, to police within Thailand. 
That's right, yes. Thailand is said to be considering plans for its police to work with Chinese police. This in an... an, an, an excuse me, in an attempt to give Chinese tourists more confidence that the country is a safe place for them to visit. The proposals were discussed by the Thai Prime Minister, Seta Tawisin, and officials from the police and the tourism industry over the weekend. Uh, they said there was a similar policy that had been rolled out in Italy. And it's safe to say this has really sparked an outcry. Some have said it would be a threat to Thai sovereignty. Uh, and it's forced the Thai government to come out today on Monday and clarify defend their plans. A spokesperson said that Thai and Chinese police wouldn't actually go out on patrols together, as had been reported in some media, but just that they would share information. And the spokesperson said that representatives from the Thai tourism industry had raised concerns that Chinese tourists are worried they might be targeted by Chinese criminal groups while they visited Thailand, and that this cooperation with the Chinese police would supposedly help to counter that. Uh, so this is all about tourism. I mean, there's, there's a great graph here just showing how badly uh, Chinese tourists to, 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 to Thailand have dropped off. Yes, exactly. That's really important background to this. So Thailand's relatively new Prime Minister, Seta Tawisin, is really on a mission to attract tourists back to the country, to get visitor numbers back up to where they were before COVID, because he wants and needs actually to boost Thailand's economy, which has been very sluggish for the last few years. Uh, And his government in September scrapped all visa requirements for Chinese tourists who, before the pandemic, made up the biggest group of visitors and the, the highest spending visitors as well. Uh, In Thailand, just some figures for you. In 2019, there were 11 million Chinese tourists who holidayed in Thailand. Three years later, by 2022, post-COVID, of course, that number had effectively collapsed and it was at just 273,000. Tourism is a huge part of the Thai economy. Uh, The Chinese are obviously a massive market. uh, But despite the government's efforts, visitor numbers aren't returning as fast as they might hope. And their target of 4 million Chinese tourists visitors this year is looking out of reach at the moment despite these new uh, these new plans with the Thai police. Mm. Let's return to Singapore now. The, an Italian trade body has won a legal battle over sparkling wine, over Prosecco to be precise. That's right, Georgina. So Singapore's appeals court has ruled in favour of an Italian trade body. They'd been pushing for the term Prosecco. It's, of course, a type of sparkling wine to only be used when the drink had been produced in a specific region of Italy. Now, we're quite used to these kind of limitations on names for food and drink in uh, Europe, of course. And actually, the term Prosecco is already restricted in the EU to only sparkling wine made in this region of Italy. But Singapore is a really important destination for Australian wine exports. It's actually the number one destination for their exports in Southeast Asia. And that meant that when an Italian trade group attempted to have the term Prosecco limited, like it is in Europe, a body representing Australian grape growers and winemakers opposed it. This is a legal battle that's been going on for several years now. They said that the term, restricting the term would mean that, you know, wine drinkers, sparkling wine drinkers would be confused about the the provenance of their sparkling wine. But the courts rejected that. They overturned a 2022 uh, decision by a, a lower court. 
and wrapped up this years-long legal battle. And it's actually their first ruling on what's called geographical indications. That's a term which describes a name that can be only used for products from a specific location. Although, who knows, it might not be the last ruling on the subject. Mm, and I see that, I mean, it's also telling us that there is a huge demand for Australian so-called Prosecco there. Yes, as I say, it's, it's the number one destination in Southeast Asia uh, for the Australian wine market. Lots of the wines do actually get exported to elsewhere, but Singapore is a really key trading hub. So Australian winemakers are really key to, to keep their rights and their um, market in, in Singapore. And so this will be a bit of a blow to them this mm. week. Uh, Lillian, in these troubled times, the way I soothe myself is looking at baby animals on the internet. Uh, and I find uh, pandas particularly soothing so I'm very glad to see that we have a baby panda story. Yes, it's good news for Singaporean animal lovers and you, in fact, if you're planning a visit to Singapore in the next month or so. Uh, any resident here who hasn't had a chance to visit Lele, the two-year-old panda who lives in the River Wonders Wildlife Park, has a little bit more time to catch a glimpse. Lele was born in Singapore in 2022. He's about two years old. Uh, he was the first panda born on the island. It was very exciting. Uh, but he's effectively the property of China because his parents, Jar Jar and Kai Kai, are themselves on loan from China for 10 years. Uh, now their cub's last public appearance, which was planned for next week, has been pushed back to mid-December. Uh, but what makes this story really interesting is that China has something of a habit of loaning its pandas to foreign countries in what's often called panda diplomacy. We even saw Anthony Albanese, who's the Prime Minister of Australia, address this directly on a recent visit to uh, China. He said he was pro-panda uh, because the future of two pandas at Adelaide Zoo uh, on loan from China are in the balance. There are currently 63 pandas on exchange around the world in 19 different countries from China. They're often offered as a symbol of closeness or of rapprochement, and China gets a bit of cash when they loan them out to other countries as well. So uh, Singapore's Panda Club is almost, Panda Cub even, is almost certain to be returned to China by the end of this year. But his parents are due to be returned in 2027. So with a bit of diplomacy behind the scenes, who knows what, what might happen to them. Lillian, thank you very much indeed. That is Lillian Fawcett uh, speaking to us from Singapore. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now, the concept of beauty has spanned centuries and is now being explored in a new exhibition in London. The Cult of Beauty explores the history and science of beauty, featuring historical artefacts, modern and accessible technologies, and the profound influence of morality, status and health, age, race and gender on the evolution of ideas about beauty. Monocle's Steph Chungu went down to the exhibition to have a look. The concept of beauty has been a human fascination for centuries. From the latest anti-aging cream now, to drinking literal gold for immortality in the past. Of course, that's nothing if not the standard of objects shown at the Cult of Beauty exhibition at the Welcome Collection. This exhibition explores a concept of beauty with over 200 items and interactive rooms, all dedicated to explore the ideals of beauty standards and the drive to achieve perfection. 
From the evolution of Vogue magazine to the popularity and extremes of cosmetic surgery, the cult of beauty gives an insight to global beauty standards, such as exploration into modern hairstyles in Nigeria, to a gaze into androgynous beauty in life and art, to name a few. The expansive exhibit is curated by Janice Lee. Here she tells me how the concept of the exhibition came to be. I just started off with wanting people to see very different aspects of beauty, which is why you can see in the design of it as well that each section have a completely different mood and colour palette and materials to highlight how multifaceted the concept of beauty is. It was really interesting to discover how the history of beauty is so intertwined with one of health and scientific discovery and innovation and technological advancement. The cult of beauty follows three concepts, the industry, the ideals, and subverting beauty. While the ideals and industry look at the history and integration of science within beauty, the submersive looks at interpretations and the introduction of technology with the future looming of beauty. Janice shares more in detail. Each section have a completely different mood and colour palette and materials to highlight how multifaceted the concept of beauty is and obviously you can't not talk about ideals and notions and bodies if you're talking about beauty but then in our world today there's so much about the industry and and the digital culture and also it was really interesting to discover how the history of beauty is so intertwined with one of health. I think through these three very different ways of ways in into discussing beauty, hopefully we'll open up that conversation. Janice worked with professors, theticists, historians, and of course, beauty brands and content creators. The exhibition also has an interactive installation, which Janice explains. Forgive me for describing it so terribly, but it's a mechanic of like big vials in the center and it's set on this amazing wave concoction on statue thing and inside the vials there are different components that is used for like skincare or beauty so there was a smell of rose water i wanted to know how was it curating with the artist that created the sensorium i would say that's one of the most enjoyable experience as a curator to commission a piece like that with my own background I do a lot of interdisciplinary work and what I've observed is that it's really difficult to get people who are experts in their specialism to work together and to use creative means to bring it to a broader audience is so rewarding but also so soothing. Beauty Sensorium is one that I keep going back to just as a sanctuary for myself and I think that's a really good sign that it's done something. In the final section of the exhibit, the future of beauty details of an artist that is known as Narcissista. The New York-based artist, working exclusively with Janice for the exhibit, created a tower of her mother's belongings, from random notes to photos, all hovering over a single wooded chair with a pair of heels. For me personally, it's been a year-long process working with Narcissista. I first met her in person and discussed the idea of this commission about a year ago. Narcissistic practice have been really bold. There are a lot of strong, explicit imagery in her work. She's not worried at all to push boundaries and be controversial. But behind this mass persona, I just feels really privileged to be able to see that side of her forming her practice through a really vulnerable origin that 
complex relationship with one's mother a lot of people have and the complexity of being a mixed-race person carrying a lot of intergenerational trauma from both sides of her heritage is such a good poignant illustration on how nothing in life is in isolation we can't just talk about beauty in terms of aesthetics or morality or age because it's quite intrinsic to a lot of aspects of our lives. There are ideals of the beauty industry as a whole, but there are also dark explorations in the exhibit. For one, with British photographer Juno Calypso. Their work features pastel pinks and blue interiors, chintzy curtains and 1970s finger food. This is while her alter ego Joyce inflicts rigorous and at times lonely beauty regimes on herself. After all, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. For Monocle in London, I'm Steph Chungu. Many thanks to Steph, and that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Carlotta Rabello and Isabella Jewell, our researcher, Monica Lillis, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns with me at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.